Welcome to the Fan Engagement Pod, a new conversation about fan engagement. Don't forget you can join the Fan Engagement Network at faninsights.co.uk forward slash network forward slash join for exclusive member services and benefits. This stuff is the teacher. 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 Welcome to episode 23 of the Fan Engagement Pod and we return to football activism in a chat with Niall Cooper, Head of Media, PR and Supporter Communications for Amnesty International UK, playing an important role to promote activism in the UK for the organisation. It's critical for anyone running a club or working in football in fan engagement roles to understand how activists think and work. That makes this and episode 6 with Fulham, Spurs and Liverpool activists required listening. In fact, the word activist can make some people quite uncomfortable, and that's why understanding that they're just people like you and me who decide to do something to change a situation is so important. Aside from being a former sports journalist at The Independent, Niall is also something of a football activist himself. A Wimbledon fan, he ran the media campaign for the Plough Lane Bond earlier this year that raised £5.5 in a matter of weeks, helping to complete Wimbledon's new stadium at Plough Lane. He also co-founded and ran the alternative programme Yellow and Blue, which Wimbledon fans published during their campaign against being franchised to Milton Keynes in 2001-2002, to outselling the official programme by a reputed 3-1. to We talk about how you don't change people's minds by shouting, how football fans are not outsiders, and how you should never be scared of taking on the big boys. We also touch briefly on Amnesty's work around the attempted takeover of Newcastle United by a Saudi consortium which was going on at the time. Don't forget, you can join the Fan Engagement Network at faninsights.co.uk forward slash network forward slash join. We're introducing some exclusive member services soon. The subject is um, is activism, really. Um, so um, I suppose one of the best things I can... Well, the thing for people listening is that you are both someone who works at a, 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 a fairly senior level in a, in a, in a well-known charity um, that relies on activism. Um, and um, you rely on activists on the ground, as well as obviously having paid staff and such. Um, but also you've uh, flexed your muscles, if you want to call it that, or you've spent a bit of time yourself um, in very different environments as an activist too. So you've both been an activist um, uh, which is how we know each other from uh, our time trying to, to fight the franchising of Wimbledon's league place in 2002. And then also very recently got involved in a, um, in a piece of very different activism, which is almost a bit more like corporate shareholder activism. Um, when you became involved in the campaign to, that successfully raised £5.1 million pounds, um, uh, for the Plough Lane Bond, which has now funded uh, the final stages of getting the the new stadium at Plough Lane for FC Wimbledon built. Uh, and the alternative to that was uh, a slightly, um, dis- wasn't, uh, it was an alternative, was, 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 um, was, a, was a private ownership that, um, or dilution of fan ownership that most of the fans didn't want, hence the Plough Lane bond. So first question, I suppose, is sort of something like, 
are there parallels for a start what do you you know what's your what's your um what you know what are what are activists you know is there a sort of common trait with activists regardless of what it is they're active about and what they're concerned about is there are there thread common threads there are there things that you see as an activist yourself um you know as a fan and activists that you work with actively on the ground promoting um the causes that amnesty um promotes and support it's um kev it's for me it's passion right it's the idea that um you look at it it's a david and goliath thing always i think it's that element of you've got big beasts that are uh, kind of against you uh, and you kind of, there's a realization from a lot of activists that we, you don't have the money, you don't have the, this, the spending power to compete on that level. So the only thing you can compete with is your passion and your uh, desire to try and make a difference. So you look at how can I make a difference? You look at what can you, what can you do? And I think for most activists, it comes from that sense of uh, opposing the hopelessness going like, well, no, I'm not going to take this line down. I'm going to actually stand up and make a difference. And I think for me, that's the kind of bit you look to mobilise. You know, you look at who's got the skill sets to do X, Y, and Z that's going to make a difference and make a change. And that's a very common thread. It certainly was with, with the bond. It was about, you know, identifying who could actually get articles placed that were going to influence the right people. Who were the people that were going to uh, make a difference for you for the problem the problem for that was we need to find five million quid um and so you were looking at right well how do i reach the people that have got that money who do I, how do i appeal to it what are those audiences and you look at that and you try and deliver a, a program of events and activists role in that you know i was an activist there i was like doing it and i was one of those bits but i called on other people who were also activists who also had that same passion and drive to make that difference um, and that's the parallel with amnesty because amnesty will look at an issue and go right well how can i make people to make a difference what can i do to make a difference and you're trying to appeal to people's um moral moral attitudes and their passion to do that so you know you have a kind of level of activism that progresses so some people may just sign one petition they may uh you know write speak to their mate they may put something up on facebook they may um you know go right well okay I'll, I'll look at who i care who else can i reach out to what is the problems and it goes up up until that person who you know maybe an mp or a, a person who's in parliament who starts lobbying puts down an early day motion puts down a question in the house of commons up and you know that's where you go that's your whole level of activism it's everywhere in between um so there are so many different levels of it and i think the bit about where activism becomes successful is where you coordinate all those people you know, you'd be like, Go on. Well, one, one thing that does interest me, I suppose, is there is um, some, undoubtedly some difference, um, as opposed to the similarities, some differences between the types of activism we're talking about here. Because when you uh, were involved as a fan yourself, um, uh, creating and, and publishing Yellow and Blue, the alternative programme, to the then Wimbledon Football Club's <clears throat> match day programme uh, as part of the, the whole, uh, as one of the strands of activism, all of that. That was very oppositional and it was necessarily oppositional. We all know why and I don't propose to go into the reasons why it was oppositional. Um, 
when you um, undertook the bond, um, uh, undertook to support the media work and create, well, you basically ran the media side of the, the media campaign for the bond. Um, that is a different form because you, although there are elements of David against Goliath, I get that because there's a, an established idea, which is that we are, or there's something that's been established, which is we need to do this. And that was, we need to get um, investment to finish the stadium. This is the way we will do it. We will talk to private investors. And then the response from most of the fan base was, no, you're not. We're going to raise this money ourselves. I can see the David and Goliath there. However, you're an insider. You're not, because you're a member at that point, you aren't simply an outsider who's powerless. So like activists at a lot of football clubs where they've got influence, they need to balance their influence with the sense of being an outsider to raise interest, don't they? So you can't just far off volleys you have to be more sophisticated and thoughtful in what you do and building bridges perhaps with people more than you might do were you in a situation which obviously is very distinct but a situation like 2001-2 for Wimbledon fans or the situation lots and lots of fans have found themselves in. Yeah I, mean, I think the insider outsider argument is an interesting one and I would say that you shouldn't ever really consider yourself to be an outsider. I think that's a very big thing in a sense because you've got a stake, an interest in that issue, makes you an insider. So that's, I think that's the, that's a, you know, it's like who owns this issue? Who owns that concern? And ultimately, if you think that you own that concern and you've got a, a valid point to add, then you're an insider. And there are a whole load of other people that are also insiders that also have a bit to do and they can offer the smallest thing, but that's still something in the right direction. And you should, you know, that's where you kind of look at this coalition of activists, if you like, of, you know, people from all those different levels. So I would say that when we were looking at yellow and blue and the alternative match day program, uh, I was an insider because I was acting as a custodian of uh, Wimbledon, right? Um, one of many, one of thousands. And so therefore, I was saying that this is a club that belongs to me, doesn't belong to, you know, an, another organisation. And that's my view of it. And so I had all these other insiders that were helping to produce it, um, that programme. And it's the same with the bond. The bond was the same. You know, it's like I called in help from a whole range of other people who had connections in various different newspaper outlets or PR companies and there were people who had the connections with all the players that were helping me get all the kind of quotes and all that sort of stuff uh, I was kind of like the central coordinator of all of that but I couldn't have done any of that without all without working with all these other people and they all had smaller bits but 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 you're but as you said they were all and it's an interesting point and I think something that gets lost when um when when activism is very clear when it's uh when something's happening when there's a campaign by a group of fans it might be on ticket prices it might you know it might be as high profile as something that happened with the liverpool um supporters union the supporters trust spirit of shankly where they they and the the spine cop ultras group let a walk out of ten thousand fans over ticket prices four years ago that's a very high profile and actually quite i suppose in some senses people fear that they've you know that's that's the sort of 
that's a very oppositional kind of approach. It's at the end of a long process where they felt completely disempowered. However, actually, it's a good example to help frame what you're saying about people not being insiders or outsiders. If they've got a stake, then they're an insider. Because actually, the reason that the fans did that at the time was because they felt frustrated that a process that was being followed was arbitrarily cut short. And so they demonstrated their opposition. And actually, what maybe something like the bond scheme shows, and to a lesser extent, um, the, the unofficial programme, the yellow and blue, because the owners of the football club at that point weren't interested in having you on the inside proper, you know, actually, you know, run the running of the football club. The bond was actually part of much more than simply a piece of activism, because it was actually a statement of fans saying, this is a way that we like the way this club is owned. We reformed this football club. We own it. We want to carry on owning it. We're going to do everything we can to ensure that's still the case. So activism is, in football terms, is very much what you're talking about, I think, isn't it? It's very insider because people that, again, coming back to that point about the stake, that, and I think maybe this is the part that, that clubs struggle with more than anything else for all sorts of reasons, is that um, fans are very often trying to offer something. And, and if you can open up and be open to that, then you don't necessarily get to the point of the bond, for example, which came through activism. It didn't come through a, a process of board meetings at the Don's Trust. It came because fans are frustrated. Um, and and you, can, you can forestall those problems and actually divert the energy, can't you? Isn't that the thing? And the thing about activism to me, in football certainly, in my experience, is it's very often so much wasted energy. It could be used in so many brilliant ways, and it isn't. I agree with you. I think um, that's the hardest bit, right? Is challenging, channeling, uh, channeling that energy and that enthusiasm. Um, because actually, what you're talking about is people that are very passionate, right? To start off with, you know, they fundamentally believe in their club. And what I found from my time as being, uh, I don't know, a supporter activist, if you like is um, that you start talking to other longer-term supporters, people who get football. But there is, it's kind of a bit of a cliche, there's a lot more that the United System divides us, right? And people don't, people don't often see that. They don't I get the point of like, right, actually, we can do this as a, together, right? So for example, what we're doing at Amnesty at the moment with Newcastle and Saudi Arabia, is um, starting to, you know, look at the fans at Newcastle being uh, the bastions of the club, you know, the custodians, they're the people actually who should be responsible for, you know, what the club looks like, what the club means. And that actually means that they uh, are like among the people who can say, well, what should Newcastle look like? What should Newcastle be? How should Newcastle be perceived? And that's what I should strive towards, you know, and I encourage people to do that. It's like AFC Wimbledon, we exist because we, we're uh, advocates of fan ownership. You know, that's really where it cuts down to. That's the bond came out of the fact that, uh, you know, some people had underestimated how much of an important feeling that was for the club, for the supporters, and for what AFC Wimbledon stands for. You know, AFC Wimbledon stands for fan ownership, stands for 
um, an alternative view of how football can be run and stands for a more democratic and fairer way of football ownership, right? That's what AFC Women's model is. For a Newcastle fan, that is a club with like a massive proud tradition. You know, Newcastle is a really passionate area. And so that's what Newcastle fans should be looking for. You know, if you look at Liverpool, Liverpool fans, you know, they're ones who've got a, a, in the whole Shankly era, the Shankly Gates people and the kind of passion that, that exists with, within the Liverpool fan base. That's something that is intrinsically part of the Liverpool identity. It's not actually the, uh, you know, the owners, the, uh, you know, can come and go. The players can come and go, but the, the cop, the iconic, uh, you know, reason for being a Liverpool fan exists and continues to exist. And that's their activists, that's their passion. That's the bit that as football activists, and it shouldn't be seen as anything bad, you're, you're battling for what does football mean? What does football mean to me? And it's for a lot of people, you know, when Ads Women started, we, we called it, it's a community thing. And for me, that's what should chime for a majority of football fans. And they should not feel afraid of taking on the big boys. You know, it's not, you know, with yellow and blue, and with what we do with AFC Wimbledon, we were tackling the most the richest people in Norway. Um, you know, they bought our club and we said, we dislike the direction you're going. And we stood up because we were the people that are still going to be there when they're long gone. Um, and that should be the same for whatever football club you support. Um, you should be saying, like, well, what does, what does my club actually mean? And, and the answer really should be, it's a community thing. So the cult, so the, the, a big part of what we're talking about here is um, appreciating what the culture of a football club is and that seems to me to be one of the things that successful clubs um, if we flip it to the you know the people having to run fan engagement if you like for the purposes of this podcast um, you know people who are actually having to maintain these relationships the the issue is about what kind of culture is fostered and you find that out by doing what, say, for example, you know, I'm, I, there's a, the odd name I'll drop in, but you might not be familiar with. Um, it's what people like, for example, Ryan Sparks is the director of communications at Bradford tries to do. And, and, um, um, and what Sean, at, uh, um, Sean Lockwood at uh, Doncaster talks a lot about. And it's about kind of, I suppose, getting in the heads of people and understanding them. And that's done by spending time with people. Um, and a lot of where the fissures happen and the divisions occur is not where fans aren't given a vote on something or aren't given the opportunity to buy shares in the football club because those are inherently sort of, if you like, ideological positions. They're things you believe in the idea of fan ownership, fan shares being owned by fans. That's one thing. But if fans feel cut out of a process, that's often where problems occur and that's where activism comes in. And actually, if you, it won't be all wine and roses if you talk to people all the time and listen to what they have to say and try to incorporate what they say into what you do as a club. But there will be a lot less antagonism, I think, won't there? And, it, and, and where perhaps taking it back to your day job of am, uh, working for Amnesty, I'm assuming that where campaigns are successful is where governments and decision makers don't see you as an opposition as much as even if you feel you are a stakeholder the, there has to be a moment at which the people you're trying to influence recognize you as being important and they sit and listen to you and they don't just sit and give you positions 
and that's where the fishers stop occurring so much isn't it is where in the end the people who make the decisions will have to be prepared to sit down with you and even if they're prepared to stick to their position that they're not averse to explaining why and and being open with you yeah i think um one really interesting thing to think about is um when was the last time somebody who shout, who shouted at you made you change your mind you know instantly when was the last time somebody said uh kevin I mean, like you've totally not got a clue what you're talking about. You're, uh, you know, your your whole theory is <laughs> kind of nonsense, right? Yeah. When did you then go? Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. I've thought of it like that. Never. If <laughs> you to that, so I that might that might have something more to do with me than than the concept. No, I think, I think I it's universal. It's universal, isn't it? It's very very rare that you would have somebody shout at you, and your instant reaction is, "Oh, yeah, you've got a point." You know, you don't think like that. You have to think what is um you know what is the kind of common belief here you know and actually if you've got people who've got your club at the heart of their interests then you're already in a good starting place and if you haven't then why the hell are they part of your club <laughs> why the hell are they there because they shouldn't be you know it's 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 two different views of football right it's one is is it an entertainment industry and you are just merely a customer who is passing money over to somebody who doesn't give a shit about you, right? Or is it a community thing? Now, my view would be that long-term, the clubs that are gonna be more stable and secure are the ones who are gonna say, it's a community thing. Because on a customer basis, if a club owner goes bankrupt, then that club's just screwed because there's nobody who's gonna step in because they don't feel any kind of, they've lost that connection. You, you start like the idea for like let's still kind of go back to newcastle right that black and white shirt is iconic that black and white shirt belongs to newcastle fans it does not belong to a saudi arabia regime right so the people who should be saying well what does newcastle mean to me it means putting that shirt on with pride for an AFC wimbledon fan like it was horrible watching a club called wimbledon play that one season in milton Keynes wearing my badge right because that was not me, that was not my club. You know, my, my club was part of the community that still existed in the area that was called Wimbledon. Um, you know, that for me was really quite fundamental. And that's, I think, where you kind of got that, um, that connection that's so important. But if you go for football as a community rather than a consumer thing, then you've got the passion, you've got that connection, you've got that ability to be able to speak to people at the top. What I think is where we need to look at when we look at owners and directors of clubs is that's where their heart should be you know if your heart's not actually in that and you're doing it purely as a business then you're you're setting yourself up for a bit of a problem long term